0: Welcome to the LSE events podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences.
1: Hey, welcome everyone. It's nice to see you here tonight. Um, this uh, special event discussing Madeleine Bunting's book on the seaside England's love affair. Um, my name is Mike Savage. I work at the London School of Economics where I am Professor of Sociology. I have long-standing interests in inequality but also place, landscapes, um, British countryside and, so, and I've been talking with Madeline for a number of years about these issues and it's, it's wonderful to be able to chair this event tonight. So I'm very pleased to welcome Madeleine Bunting, Lord Bassam and Professor Shida Agarwal to both our online audience and the audience in person. Um, I'll introduce the speakers briefly, and then a bit about the format, what we'll be doing today. So many of you will know, probably most of you, all of you will know Madeline Bunting. She's an award-winning writer and journalist. She's also a visiting professor at the London School of Economics' International Inequalities Institute, where I also have an affiliation. Uh, For many years, she was a leading journalist at The Guardian. Um, And in in recent years, she's been focusing on various pieces of, Uh, creative writing, fictional and non-fictional. I have been following her work with great interest over the years, and I think she has an amazing ability to grasp issues around landscape and belonging and identity, starting with her book on Yorkshire, and then the work on the Hebrides in Scotland and this most recent book. Be an example of that. (coughs) Um, So so, uh, Madeline will speak first and introduce the book and some of the issues arising from it for around 20, 25 minutes. We will put on to Lord Bassam, who is a British labour and Cooperative politician and a member of the House of Lords. He's currently Director of Business in the Communities Place programme, so he'll be reflecting upon issues around seaside, how seaside, seaside towns are perceived from the point of view of government and policy making. And finally, we'll put on to Sheila Agarwal, who is Associate Head of, of the School of Research and Innovation for the Plymouth Business School and co-director of the centre, the coastal community. She's one of the leading academics working around studying coastal towns. So as you can see, our panel will, will straddle academic expertise, political interests, um, creative writing, and it should be a very exciting discussion. If, if there's time, I might contribute a few thoughts of my own from our own work at the LSC, around place and entity. So, as you will know, the focus today is uh, Madeleine's recent book entitled The Seaside, England's Love Affair, which came out a few months ago, has had fantastic reviews. It discusses how we can forge a new future for England's seaside towns, how we can remedy the neglect in which they've been held in much public thinking, and how we can think about tackling some of the entrenched problems, including deprivation, low pay, poor health, and poor social mobility. So we'll have this panel for 45, 50 minutes. There should be lots of time for questions from the floor before we finish eight o'clock. Okay, a few final housekeeping things for Twitter users. the hashtag is um, Dash LSEIII. The event is being recorded, and we hopefully um, will hopefully be made available as a podcast. At the end, we'll have questions both from the floor and from those online. If you are online, please use the Q&A feature. Um, and for those of you in the audience, I'll obviously be looking at your interest and show of hands. Okay, I think that's enough. Um, so with no further ado, I'd like to welcome Madeline to introduce the session. Thank you. Uh,
2: thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. And thank you very much, Mike, for the introduction. Um, I've got a slide up because I think we can't really talk about the seaside without having a very strong visual uh, reminder of the English seaside. Uh, So these won't be very uh, informative slides, they're more sort of background, uh, mood making if you like. Um, Those kind of grey clouds, uh, bits of rubbish, uh, broken up concrete, that's the sort of vibe. Um, But thank you Mike uh, and thank you so much Steve and, and Sheila. Uh, whose work I I have so admired in doing the research for this book, for coming along today uh, to have this conversation. Uh, As Mike says, I've written two books on place and landscape and belonging uh, before I wrote um, The Seaside. And um, that fascination in how places are made and our relationship with them, uh, in some ways it was a, a, a kind of obvious intrigue for me to think about seaside towns. They're such distinctive places. They have such a very, very powerful pull on our imagination. Um, uh, and they are so defining of national identity that I would argue that their cultural significance uh, is, is, is enormous. You only have to think of the number of films and novels and uh, music that has been um, made or, or uh written about these these kind of iconic places in our national identity. Uh, But there's a particular dimension of them that I want to focus on this evening. Um, My book thought about placemaking in these coastal towns from a very, very wide range of perspectives, the cultural, uh, the the social, the economic, the astonishing historical story. If you track it over the course of 200 or so years, these towns were boom, and then a very, very dramatic bust uh, starting in the, in the early 70s. But because I'm at the LSE, I want to focus on the particular dimension uh, of, of uh, how they have become what I would describe as a salt fringe. Uh, we know about the US Rust Belt, but the Rust Belt has become a very kind of well known um, uh, metaphor. And it seems to me that we need to have just as well known this metaphor of the salt fringe, because around the the UK coasts and particularly the English coastline, there is a a process of deindustrialisation, rather like the Rust Belt, and it's led to a combination, and combination is a key word, a combination of pockets of deep poverty and widespread chronic ill health and declining prosperity. I would argue it's a problem that's hiding in plain sight. Everybody here has an understanding and a notion of the decline of English coastal towns. But what I think we need to interrogate much, much more closely is the complacency and the indifference. I always think it's quite interesting in the mid-80s there was a really galvanizing moment when the plight of the inner cities captured the public imagination and it captured pu- uh, political attention as well. But something comparable has never happened about our coastal towns. There has been no key moment when any politician has stood on a pier or indeed a, a seafront like that one and said, this is unacceptable. It is not beyond the capacity Political will and policy to recreate, re- forge a new f- future for these towns. So I question that complacency and indifference. And the apathy. It's almost as if we think it's all to do with sunshine. Well, I wouldn't dispute that it has something to do with sunshine. In the 70s, the British holidaymaker decided they wanted sun over all else and they started going on package holidays, that bit we know, we understand. But what we've not managed to do is to think, well, how could these towns be reinvented? So what we have been left with for a generation is one of the worst illustrations, arguably the worst illustration of the growing inequality in this country. For over four decades, central government has failed lamentably failed to grasp the distinctive characteristics of this salt-fruit fringe. The way in which all seaside towns all over the UK, despite whether they're north or south, share common challenges. And it's not just me saying that they've been overlooked, ignored. One of the most disturbing and slightly poignant comments that was in the House of Lords Select Committee report which Lord Basson chaired, uh, which came out in 2019 and then there was a follow-up report more recently, was when the the members of the Select Committee travelled around those coastal towns to talk to people and local authorities in those towns, again and again they heard the same thing, a sense that those towns have been neglected, abandoned, not heard. So having sort of set that scene, let me describe a little bit about what makes this type of poverty, this salt fringe, such a challenging problem. Uh, Lord Jim Knight, one of those that was on that select committee in an interview with myself, did admit it's a wicked problem. It's difficult. Perhaps that's why governments have decided when they have resources, they'll go to other parts of the country or there are other priorities. These are towns that have been built on mass tourism, and they often have huge heritage buildings. Blackpool Tower used to entertain thousands. The promenades were packed. The old photos show these extraordinary images of just how enormously popular these towns were. And that's another interesting characteristic about all these towns, is they live with their ghosts. No matter where you go, in a seaside town, you will stumble at some point or another over images of their past. This one in particular is in Minehead on a notice board on the seafront. So just in case you're wondering what Minehead used to look like, you're reminded. Um, but it's, it's evident everywhere. in Skegness in a cafe where I was having extremely cheap fish and chips. There were black and white photos on the wall of its glory days when Skegness was an extremely glamorous, elegant seaside resort for for London with trains from London promising fresh air, which for London in the first part of the 20th century was indeed a luxury. So the towns are haunted by their glamorous, glorious pasts and I think that's part of the way in which their confidence has been crippled. But that is not only it. They've been hit by the shockwaves, the fallout of a social economic crisis, the drivers for which are well beyond their borders, their boundaries, and, the, and lie in neighbouring cities and regions. And it's the combination of a, de, of a process of deindustrialization and the way and role they play in a regional uh, a sort of a, re- a, a a spatial distribution of people i 'll explain a bit more in a minute, and those two interact, which makes it so difficult you can 't attract more people to visit a city like Blackpool when the poverty and the suffering is self evident and so so hard to ignore so no matter how many times there are government grants for ha- hanging flower baskets or I think when I was there, they were busy kind of cobbling a central square. It only required a short walk of two or three minutes to go round the corner to find an area where the poverty is so evident. And, and so troubling and so worrying. These are not comfortable places in many respects to visit. You walk along Blackpool promenade as I did and it's not just the homelessness, it's people with severe mental ill health. One man was yelling at the waves at nine o'clock in the morning. Something about how the the English were to blame, the English were to blame. It seemed a sort of canonly appropriate. So the towns are dealing with a, a, a concentration and an exceptional combination of a set of trends evident across the UK. And I would pick out five which are very familiar. It's the way they interact that I think is really distinctive about coastal towns. So the first one, low paid work, low skill work. Coastal towns are dominated, their economies are dominated by care and hospitality. There's lots of seasonal work. Scarborough has the lowest average wages in the country. And if you look at the rest of the towns in that bottom 10, more than half of them are are coastal towns. That contributes to educational underachievement, low social mobility. Again, Great Yarmouth, lowest educational achievement in the country. Minehead, illustrated just here, in happier days, Minehead has the lowest social mobility in the country. If you're born into a town like Minehead, it's very hard to leave. And then they are amongst the oldest towns in the country. So places like Minehead and Skegness are the oldest. They have the oldest populations. T- retirees uh, increase that, dem- that demographic and when you project forward it's quite dramatic the dem- increase in the number of 80, um, those in their 80s and 90s and with that comes a very, very high demand for health care. And a very high level of long-term health conditions but the health services struggle to recruit and retain and it's a real problem with gaps of care workers and health professionals one of the uh one one part of government which i think has gone out of its way to draw attention uh, to this fringe this salt fringe is the chief medical officer chris witty And he has a map in his annual report in 2021, when he chose to focus entirely on coastal towns with lots of work from Plymouth University, um, Sheila's and her colleagues. He showed how there is a fringe of coronary disease all around our coastlines. And he has continued to, to point out the gaps in healthcare provision. So some of the statistics about health and health inequality are simply extraordinary. The gap in life expectancy between a central ward of Western Supermare and five or six miles up the road, the central ward of Clevedon, a much more middle-class town on the outside which benefits from retirees from Bristol. It's a 16 year gap in life expectancy for men and even higher for women. The third factor is that housing is almost always an acute challenge. And really, this book running right through it is the UK housing crisis. In Devon and Cornwall, the housing is too expensive and there's no affordable housing on the coastlines because of second homes, Airbnb, gentrification. A local population is being forced out. I interviewed one woman who'd lived all her life in the North Devon town of Braunton, and she'd just lost her flat because somebody wanted to convert it to an Airbnb. There was simply nowhere for her to go in a town that she had lived in all her life. Her family were there, her children were in school there. Devon and Cornwall have declared a housing emergency, but even a place like Torquay struggles. Land is expensive, and I was told by the the leader of the local authority that any affordable housing is a long way away in Taunton, or—and you get right the opposite end of the spectrum—it's too cheap. The housing is too cheap. So places like Blackpool and Morecambe, absentee landlords buy up the old hotels, the big bed and breakfasts that, can, that are being closed down, <laughs> turn them into cheap bed and be- bed bedsits, which are designed to attract highly vulnerable tenants who will then claim benefit. So, Blackpool's concentration of vulnerability is a shocking example of a dysfunctional housing market which is entirely funded by the taxpayer to the benefit of absentee landlords. It's a disgrace. The council has lobbied to, to get extra powers to limit the number of houses Uh, um, in multiple occupation, as they're known, the HMOs, and struggled. It's not the local authorities' fault, I wouldn't say. But the cheap housing in places like Blackpool, Morecambe, Western Supermare, Clacton, attract the fallout from nearby cities, rising house prices, such as Manchester, Bristol, London. What, What these places, and they dominate, the the poorest places in the whole country. The poorest place is Jaywick, which is uh, an uh, an area next to Clacton. And then uh, there are three wards in Blackpool South, which are the next poorest places in the country. And that's been true now for nearly a generation. It's an incredibly stubborn, persistent form of poverty. And it's, it's all driven by incomers arriving because this is the end of the line. This is their last chance to turn their lives around. They may remember a family childhood holiday. They may hope that somehow something about being beside the sea can help them turn things around. Many arrive with mental health issues, substance abuse. 8,000 people arrive in Blackpool every year, and 44% of them are single males. The transience within the town is very high as well in a place like Blackpool as people keep on moving to cheaper accommodation, trying to escape from uh, a problematic situation of one kind or another. And the local health and social and educational services can easily find themselves completely overwhelmed. Certainly, the the uh, substance abuse uh, um, services struggle to cope. I talked to somebody working in the Education Authority about every summer there will be hundreds of children who suddenly need to be found places in the schools for September. All these trends are evident in other places. I'm not saying this is entirely the seaside. But what is is really striking is how they're particularly acute at the coast and the way that they overlap and interact. And also the way they're overlooked because of the inadequacies in how data is gathered, and perhaps Sheila will speak to that shortly. It's their pockets, their micro pockets of poverty, perhaps just a few streets where you have concentrations of highly vulnerable people. And often that is not being captured in data. So data that looks at, for example, a ward level will not capture the depth of despair and poverty. So seaside towns face a particular challenge. How can they possibly recreate this kind of carnival atmosphere that we expect of a seaside town? How can they represent their towns as fun-loving and joyful and a place for fun and lightheartedness when they're dealing with the breakdown of the welfare state, to put it bluntly? They also have another problem, which is that if they're hoping to diversify their economies, economies and um, which many have the ambition of doing because mass tourism is not coming back, there could be no illusion about that. People still visit these coastal towns in huge numbers, 13 million to Blackpool every year, 4 million to Skegness. But they don't stay the number of nights which ensure a vibrant seaside economy or spend enough money. So the challenge of rebuilding them as as tourist towns is severe and arguably they would be better placed to focus, local authorities to focus their efforts on diversification. But they are at a disadvantage there. In all the levelling up funding, they're at a disadvantage because of their peripherality. They have half the catchment of customers and half the catchment of employees. So when it comes to competing for leveling up funding, for example, they struggle. And the emphasis on improving productivity often puts them at a disadvantage, given that their core industries are care and hospitality up to this point. So given the challenge that they face, it seems to me uh, that local authorities have been largely left to cope with this on their own and they have a fraction of the resources they had 15 years ago. Economic development teams who might be trying to work out how to attract funding, how to forge a new future for these towns are often almost non-existent. They're down, they're being decimated by job cuts.
3: There's a severe lack
2: of capacity at a local level to compete for pots of government funding. So I would argue that it's not just about the populations who live on these coastal towns. I would argue that seaside resorts play a really crucial role in our national identity. If you have 13 million people visiting Blackpool every year, they have very, very strong opinions about what's happening in that town. They also have very strong memories. When I walked along the Blackpool promenade talking to these visitors, the sense of pity, disappointment, disgust was visceral. And, that, and people were, were taking away a sense of anger. Why has this been allowed to happen? A deep sense of nostalgia. I was very struck by the fact that if you go online and look at old footage of Blackpool, there's a series of remarkable films where they put together clips of the, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and you can see the way in which the crowds of holiday makers change, their fashions, what they want to do, etc. They're rather, rather lovely little made, made, uh, films made up. But the comments afterwards were very, very disturbing because what happened was there was a switch from in, one enjoying the film, saying, yes, I almost recognise myself in the background in the 1950s version or the 1960s version, to then a sense of deep, deep anger. Nostalgia is a very unstable emotion, it seems to me. It can switch, and I think that's what happened in Clacton in 2014, which was really the key pivotal moment. The UKIP voter, uh, the, UKIP, uh, the MP, Conservative MP, defected to, the, to UKIP and was voted back in. Uh, and it was really a starting gun, if you like, for the Brexit campaign. Um, of 2016. Clacton claims it started that revolution, uh, and many would say that's entirely right. And just as one's trying to get one's head around all these various aspects of of the particular predicament, I think we have to point out that the long-term trend of these towns is that they're slipping ever further behind, particularly in terms of wage levels and they are also facing a growing crisis from, um, a growing challenge from climate crisis. So rising sea levels will damage infrastructure, increase flooding, and more erosion, all of which will deter investment. And another issue which, which actually is causing a great deal of concern amongst local authorities on coastal areas is that they, their rubbish dumps are vulnerable to sea, in many places, are, are vulnerable to sea level rise, with obviously potential for catastrophic pollution of the sea and their beaches, which is already, needless to say, I'm sure everybody here knows plenty about the pollution on seaside uh, coastal waters. Um, but it's, it's very, very striking that a town like Scarborough, which of course depends on visitors, uh, you can't swim on their main beach. And if you do, you are likely to, 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 to get ill. It's, it's not clean enough. But before I I, I leave you with uh, a a very, very depressing picture, I want to end on a a, a more positive note, which is that in every single seaside town I went to, there was an extraordinary kind of community determination. It's a sort of end of the line defiance uh, to try and do something about the the issues that they had in their town. Whether it was soup runs, food banks, or um, various types of other voluntary activity, trying to restore these beautiful, large, enormous heritage buildings, um, such as the Winter Gardens in Morecambe. Uh, There is an incredible spirit of voluntary effort. And some concern I have to add about the burnout that that can entail, uh, where they're trying to tackle social issues without adequate funding. But there are times when that incredible community effort can come together with some funding, some some visionary funding, and have remarkable results. So there are some very, very inspiring projects around the country. Eden North in Morecambe, where the um, Eden Centre in Cornwall is planning its its new centre in the north, is an extraordinary project, and very, very exciting for Morecambe. But this one that I've shown here on this screen is a place called East Quay in West Somerset where five women started meeting in a pub uh, about 10 years ago now. They all had kids in the same school, they all lived in this small town called Watchit in West Somerset, just down the road from Minehead, and they wanted to try and do something for their town. It had lost its main employer. Uh, It was falling on very, very hard times. Uh, And through sheer tenacity and determination, These women have uh, raised 7.5 million to build this state-of-the-art art art centre. With Airbnb pods, those strange kind of towers that look like sort of egg boxes, you can actually stay in them. That will help generate an income. They've got makers, studios, art classes, a vibrant cafe. Imagination and determination. There are other projects in Maplethorpe on the Lincolnshire coast. So the key issues are about connectivity. It's about good railway links. The the decline of these resorts began with the ending of their railway lines in many, many situations. They need really good digital connectivity and they need affordable housing. If those basics were in place, there is no reason why some of these towns, which are often within reach of major urban conurbations, can't become really attractive places to live now that remote working has become such a common phenomenon. And that's already evident in many of the coastal towns around Kent and Sussex. So when people say, are you hopeful? I'm cautiously so. They are beautiful places to be. The coastline has a deep, deep pull on us, but it is absolutely vital that they get the attention and the funding to turn it around.
3: Thank
1: you. Thank you you so much, Madeleine, for that um, somewhat pessimistic but really comprehensive (laughs) and um, uh, uh, reflective set of observations. So now we're going to move on to Lord Bassam to talk about his perspective on issues facing seaside towns. Thank you.
3: Thank you, uh, Mike, um, and thank you very much, Madeline. Ma- Ma- Madeline's written the book I would like to have written, actually. Um, I- I've had a lifelong association with the coast and seaside, and uh, it's become something of an obsession. I was brought up um, near Clacton on sea. I went to school in Clacton for seven years. Half of my mates came from Jaywick. Um, I decided to go to university in Brighton in 1971 and during the time which I grew up my mother always used to take me to Whitby for my annual holiday and I, I said to her why are we going to Whitby we live near the sea already she said well don't you want more of it um, and I thought she was a bit mad and batty at the time but actually I love uh, being by the coast and it's been a source of inspiration for my uh, politics uh, ever since and it's also something that I feel quite deeply about uh, and you know, I'm I'm one of those people who wants to see us regenerate our seaside towns and communities because I think they are worth it and they deserve nothing less. So recently, I I prepared a, a sort of policy note for some of my colleagues um, to think about, and my starting point was some polling that the Fabian Society did just over a year ago, uh, and this is sort of about the politics of of what Labour is and where we're trying to go. So in 2019, the Tories took something like 51% of the vote in the 108 English and Welsh parliamentary constituencies identified as being wholly or partially linked to seaside towns. The Fabian survey excluded, this is quite important, Liverpool, Brighton and Hull. Uh, Labour in that election won just 24 of the 108 seats compared to 45 in 2005, um, and the Tories, uh, uh, that, in that election, basically split the seaside towns with, with Labour. The Fabian polling analysis showed that in November uh, 2022, Labour was on 38%, the Tories on 32% in those seawall seats. And the same polling revealed that the Tory brand in the seats was damaged, or if you like to use a sort of seaside metaphor, underwater with 55% thinking the Tories did not understand their local area, where 23% thought they did. And only 52% did not share the Tories' uh, values, um, whereas 28% thought they did. Labour was uh, further ahead in the the coastal seats that it actually won in 2019. And while that was good news for the Labour Party, uh, the fact that they were more popular than the Tories um, in those seats there was still a real belief, the polling revealed, that Labour didn't really get the needs of those communities. We were just simply the least worst option. And so our lead was quite narrow. Now, it has to be said that in terms of the Labour electorate, um, coastal communities and seats are something of a challenge. As Madeleine's described, um, populations by the coast tend to be older, um, they have a, a larger proportion of voters over the age of 55. They're mostly homeowners and a majority uh, are non-graduates. So I think the um, non-graduate population falls sort of to the low 30% in coastal communities. And there are a segment of the electorate that had definitely moved away from Labour. Um, during the Brexit referendum, uh, coastal communities overwhelmingly uh, backed Brexit. But go back to 1997, and Labour won Clacton on Sea. They won it for two successive elections. They won Hastings, Hove, Thanet, Scarborough, Whitby, Cleethorpes, Dover, Great Yarmouth, Lowestoft, Rill, and all of those coastal areas along the northeast and northwest coastline. So, for Labour to win this year in the, the election, um, they will need to create a, a coalition of the sort that they created electorally in that year. Uh, And while you might argue that um, that the seaside seats uh, might not be a top priority, if Labour wants to create a coalition that lasts so it can bring more longer-term transformational change, then my argument, uh, a very simple one, is that it needs to secure a large majority. And that means it needs to win those communities back again. The, The Fabian polling report and analysis said this. Polling shows that Labour can win these seats Moreover, it can do so without losing ground elsewhere. With some relatively simple, uncontroversial measures to win both the coast and the country, Labour should appeal to shared values, develop a unifying policy agenda, and address specific coastal challenges. And that's really what I hope um, our party does. It could make the difference between Labour being in government for one term, two terms, or even three. And Labour has, to its credit, um, partly at the urging of those of us who care about the coast, begun to think about what sort of policy offer uh, we might put forward. In 1997, we had a broad appeal to uh, a sense of fairness, that we were going to invest and renew areas which had long been neglected by successive Tory governments, with the promise of better schools, investment in health care, employment, sure start... Together with education action zones, health action areas, uh, made it easy for us to mobilise folks behind the Labour Party. The need for a specific offer to coastal communities was covered by a simple unifying message that you could understand if you were in Clacton or Cleethorpes or Hastings and Hove, and, and it worked. And I think one of the important things is we, we tend to just see the, the salty fringe as being about hospitality, about bucket and spade trade, about uh, the sort of fripperies and and frivolities that coastal communities sometimes represent in our imagination. But actually, they are more more profound places than that. They are um, and have been historically places of of industry. I I said recently in a talk I gave that um, the Brighton that I came to in the 70s was a town that um, uh, had... Declined not just because of the changing nature of the holiday market, but because its industry had been hollowed out. Um, So it was a semi-industrial town that had also fallen on hard times because of the way in which uh, the the, the industrial economy had changed. And that's the case all the way around the coast, if you look and you think about it. So towards the end of the Blair-Brown years, I think there was a perception that while the city heartlands for Labour were doing well... Um, the towns and communities on the periphery were doing less well. There was a 2007 report produced by a common select committee that looked at the future of seaside and coastal communities and it, it uh, concluded that there should be more investment in health and education uh, and, and that standards were falling behind those in cities uh, and urban centres. And it pointed towards the coastal and urban disconnect uh, and made policy recommendations in, uh, look looking at the needs of the coast. Now in 2010 we had a change of government and though a lot of promises have been made they were not fulfilled Um, but during sort of electorally at each of the elections during the period from 2010 uh, Labour's seats tally in the coastal communities fell to the point where um, we lost Hartleypool three years ago and only have 23 coastal MPs. the Lord's Select Committee, which uh, we produced in 2019, I suppose you might argue, um, from a Labour perspective, usefully highlight the fact that uh, the coastal communities are failing to thrive um, and falling further behind. And rather, as Madeline has described in her book, the committee found, uh, the Select Committee found that transport, the digital economy, education, health, public service provision and access to cultural assets in our cult, cult, coastal towns and cities had regressed even further. Um, and whilst you know, we concluded from our visits around the, 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 the coast of England primarily, um, that people loved the seaside, wanted it still, thought it was a great place to be, thought it was a great place to bring up young families actually. Um, there were a few of those areas that felt that they were getting the benefits of uh, any sort of regeneration perhaps with the exclusion of Brighton, Bournemouth, and Ives and Margate, and you could argue actually uh, Scarborough, I think, and Whitby. Um, so the investment was lacking. The long decline of the UK seaside, I think, as, as, as Madeline said, is very much linked to the decline of our industrial heartlands um, and the development of a more universal holidaying trend abroad. I sort of rooted it in my mind, and I think it's true, um, that that this was sort of given an extra twist in the 60s with the the decimation of our railway network and the beaching cuts. If you look at rail maps from um, that period, you will see how many seaside towns lost uh, a direct connection into um, the major rail network. Whitby is an interesting example. It had three connections from Middlesbrough, from Scarborough uh, and from further down the coast. And it was left with only one link uh, into the rail network via Middlesbrough. It could take you a whole day to get there. Uh, uh, Swanage was cut off from the railway network until a heritage line was created. And if you go around the coast, you'll you, you find that North Devon and Cornwall lost the Atlantic Express. And so those communities uh, lost their, 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 their place in the sort of rail network and, and partly uh, the, 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 the sort of uh, the world that they were part of before. Um, it's true too that i think that sort of sense of disconnection was amplified by the fact they were taken out of the rail network and and though promises were made to restore transport connections with buses uh, and you know the, the development of the motorway network there are very few of the coastal areas that are plugged straight into the motorway network for sure the motorway goes past blackpool and it goes close to margate it actually finishes um, 25 miles north of Brighton. So, you know, most places have that feeling that they aren't part of the wider uh, world. Um, Madeleine talked about uh, deprivation, and clearly our report identified that as a major issue. Uh, but social mobility is very low. Minehead is the, the worst. Weymouth isn't far behind. And if you look at Yarmouth, Lower Stoft, and so on, they have uh, very low levels of... Uh, of social mobility. I think Chris Whitty's health report in 2021 uh, did the nation a favor because really it said loud and clear that health services in coastal communities uh, are far short of where they need to be um, in terms of quality and standard. And there is great inequality as a product of that in health outcomes. The other area that we touched on back, back in 2019 was access to higher and further education. I would argue now that we need to disperse more of our HE institutions and um, locate them or locate outposts from them in in coastal communities. The examples of Falmouth and and I suppose um, uh, Scarborough and one or two of the others show what a difference having an HE institution can make to the immediate community and the wider diaspora. And it changes the demographic. The thing I love about my own city, Brighton, um, is that every year we get this massive churn of students, we've got like 40,000 there, and it brings the youth and energy and imagination back into our local economy, because a percentage of those students stay uh, and they add their knowledge bank and their expertise to what's there locally. The other depressing feature uh, of what happens, has happened to coastal communities is this, that there has been a flight and decline in the quality of professional services. So, um, accountancy services, legal services, uh, are far poorer in those areas. You find it's harder to get a decent um, dentist. It's 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 more difficult to access good GP services. And so that uh, you know further exacerbates the, 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 the lack of um, the, the 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 sort of the lack of service provision uh, and the the impact on care services is. Um, is is going to get worse, frankly, if we carry on as we are. Um, I look at Lincolnshire. Lincolnshire's got uh, quite a few problems, really. One of them is um, uh, its age profile. Something like 30% of the population there is over 65. And if it goes on getting older at the rate in which it currently is, there won't be enough people there uh, of sufficient youth to service the ageing population. And Lincolnshire knows it's got that great difficulty. The other problem, of course, Lincolnshire has got is that um, it could be its in the front line of um, not just coastal erosion, but rising sea levels. Um, And there's an estimate that it could lose a third of its land mass um, in terms of agricultural land, uh, which would be a major shock to our agricultural system. So uh, I'll, I'll conclude with this sort of series of thoughts. Polling suggests that coastal communities feel they're being left out and left behind. Policy needs to address um, those issues. We need to have um, a sort of... We need to have a a confluence of manifestos interested in revival. Regeneration is possible. Uh, I've argued that coastal communities are ripe for art and cultural regeneration, and I think we should think about some of the more successful places that have chosen that route. My own city, Brighton & Hove, um, Dundee, uh, a, a coastal um, port, v there has it's begun to transform that community. Margate, St Ives, Scarborough, they're all trying to, to, to move into that sort of policy area. Some of the things I think a, a new government should look at are appointing a minister with a specific responsibility for coastal communities as part of their portfolio. Leadership in coastal communities is really important. National leadership for those communities is important too. There should be a better um, rationalisation of the funding that's available for uh, our coastal communities. The the government set up a fund, but there are also other funds, but they are unequally distributed and they have different um, criteria. So the notion that there's a uniform um, pot of money there levelling up and from improving the public realm uh, is something of a nonsense, it's a, a, an unreal competition. And we should coast proof major policies, we should review health and mental health policies, and we should have a national tourism policy that uh, is uh, all about spreading the benefits that tourism can bring uh, much more evenly. And I suppose to couple with that we should have a, a stronger, more powerful drive of evolving arts and cultural centres of excellence. Um, Madeline talked about digital being perhaps a rescue point for coastal areas and I think it is. Uh, and I would argue that we should create a sort of coastal community wealth fund perhaps do- drawn from um, our nation's dormant assets which uh, uh, toast, uh, total many millions actually billions of funds that are hidden or hidden away. And if we look again at transport it's the most difficult one to crack because it's so expensive. But I think, do think that we need to have a better and more connected um, look at how transport serve, services, services and serves coastal areas. So uh, it's a big policy agenda. I think coastal communities deserve it. And I hope that um, in the future governments take the issues that affect coastal communities as seriously as they do those that uh, affect our urban heartlands. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Steve. And now, our uh, last
0: speaker, uh, last not least, Steve Shee Hi. I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy.
2: LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for
0: LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event.
4: Okay. um, Thank you, Steve. Thank you, uh, Madeline. Um, We've already heard quite a lot about the complex interlinkages of uh, sociocultural, economic and environmental challenges which exist within our coastal communities. Um, And I think what is absolutely great about Madeline's book is that she not only highlights the inequalities that associated with the coastal fringe, the salt fringe, but also she delves into those lived experiences of people, um, of local people living in um, um, it, um, unequal lives. Um, because of the interlinked nature, I think, um, personally, only through dual interventions of investment in people and the place will begin to address the issues because place in this context, or more specifically, the periphery, actually does really matter. This statement is uh, best illustrated, I guess, by a study that myself and our colleagues undertook. Um, and what we did was we compared the economic performance and productivity um, amongst 58 of the largest seaside towns um, in England. Um, it focused on 17 people and, be- uh, people and place-based actors encompassing economic, human, and environmental capital, and it measured their influence on three distinct components of economic performance, productivity, employment, and labour market participation. Um, The outcome can be seen in this particular table, and I'm not going to dwell um, too long on this, Um, um, but you will see um, on the um, left-hand column, you have the leading Seaside towns, in terms of productivity, um, and there may be no surprises there. And then um, on the right hand column, you will see the lagging seaside towns. And again, we've we've, uh, mentioned Skegness, Clacton, uh, for example, and Morecambe, Blackpool, Margate, and they all feature um, in terms of what we call, what I call, the lagging um, seaside towns. Um, What the study highlighted was again this mixture of combination of people and place, um, which, was, uh, which was, again, impeding the economic performance and productivity of leading and lagging seaside towns. And again, some of these variables might not be of any particular surprise. Um, you know, in terms of characteristics most commonly associated with leading seaside towns, you would have higher employment or less people on welfare, whereas in terms of lagging towns, you have uh, lower employment, more on welfare. Um, In terms of leading towns, you'll have more people employed in managerial and professional jobs. Um, In lagging seaside towns, more people employed in unskilled and manual jobs, um, and so on and so forth. So if we think about, in terms of place, what can can we do about place? what is required, and again, we've heard quite a bit of this from uh, Madeline and Steve already, but what is required is the development of diversified economies. And this sounds quite easy, but it's incredibly difficult. Um, but a diversified economy can create economic output and value and benefit for local communities. Um, if we look at those English coastal communities that are economically leading in terms of productivity, they all have diverse economies. Many of the economically lagging are based on low-value industries traditionally thought of as being tourism and hospitality and on sectors that centre on social care and public administration. Um, Again, this is a very, um, very much a complex ask because it relies on the creation of more and better quality employment, but what constitutes decent employment? Good jobs. Um, And again, that's a question for another, another debate. Seaside towns should also take advantage of the opportunities that their location affords them. Um, One opportunity might well be the development of more knowledge-based jobs linked to the creative industries and other high-value mobile industries that are not dependent on the physical infrastructure and can overcome issues of peripherality. And again, we've talked about, uh, Madeline and Steve have both talked about Um, cultural, heritage, tourism, industries, um, but also um, digital connectivity as well, and how that is particularly important in support of this. Um, Another um, opportunity might well be the development of a sustainable blue economy. By this I don't just mean sustainable agriculture and marine technology and services, but also the opportunities afforded by um, the development of floating offshore um, wind farms. Um, Wind provides nearly a quarter of the country's total electricity requirements, the supply of which is forecast to grow significantly with the construction of new fixed and floating marine wind farms over the next five years. Um, There are a number of um, new flow sites being developed and it's gathering momentum. Um, For example, in September 2022, the largest offshore wind farm, alstead Hornsea 2, became operational, um, located near Grimsby. Um, you have planned developments of two wind farms located 45 miles off the coast of Great Yarmouth, in South England. It's attracted about £11 billion worth of investments, with £22 billion worth of planned projects, generating approximately 6,000 jobs. And then there are others located and Triton Knoll located near Mablethorpe and Skegness. And by far, I guess, one of the biggest opportunities um, which is in development is around what we call the Celtic Sea, um, floating offshore um, um, developments um, um, off the southwest um, coast um, and the Welsh coast, and again off the Irish coast as well. Um, And I know there have been uh, criticisms levied at the generation how much actually it benefits the community and how much generation of direct employment from these developments but they do have the potential to stimulate growth of the supply chain including supplies of component materials and services required for construction and maintenance but also more importantly in research development and innovation activities as well as ancillary, ancillary services such as logistics transportation, consulting and legal services. And if an ecosystem of related industries and services can be built around these developments, then their employment generation potential increases substantially. Um, other opportunities um, involve around um, the tourism and hospitality industry, uh, for example, Um, There are various ways in which it can overcome its seasonal nature, and we've seen that in some of the leading seaside towns, um, through the development of all-weather facilities, out-of-season holidays, by the development of heritage and cultural tourism, which by its very nature attracts higher spending visitors. Indeed, there are many examples of seaside towns all around the country, and again, Steve has mentioned quite a few. Um, St Ives, for example, Exmouth, um, <clears throat> which have been highly successful in doing just this, whether it's the development of gastronomic, tourism, arts or music offerings. So that is a little bit about place. Um, in terms of investment in people, um, we, urgently, we urgently need to upskill and retrain local people to take advantage of some of these new um, opportunities. There is a a, a gap in terms of children and young people taking STEM subjects. And again, um, that is something that we need to encourage and widen participation um, so that um, uh, there is more uptake of these particular particular subjects. Um, How can we ensure that the local um, community benefit from some of these opportunities is another key question, particularly um, children and young people. and again, this is uh, um, there needs to be particular investment in our children and young people, um, as they are the future of our seaside towns. But they are experiencing shocking um, education and health issues. Um, and again, Chris Whitty's report began to highlight um, um, highlighted many of these. Um, if we look at this particular slide here, um, this compares. Um, outcomes, educational outcomes, um, for coastal areas relative to non-coastal areas. So what you're seeing here um, is a graph showing the coastal outcomes. So what you're seeing is um, <coughs> uh, the outcome for um, children receiving no qualifications is greater in coastal um, coastal areas. Uh, <coughs> The, um, there's higher drug misuse in coastal areas, higher self-harm, higher alcohol um, admissions, and again, lower progression to HE and children taking level three qualifications. It's quite startling and it's, it's really quite um, shocking. Um, there are other issues as well, um, <clears throat> in terms of um, sort of invested in people. Um, there is a gap now in terms of the southeast and the rest of the UK. It's now wider um, than between East and West Germany or Northern and Southern Italy. Um, it's also hard to affect change when we're working with a centralized governance with rules that work against the periphery. And again, Steve started to talk about that a little bit. Um, and I, I'm particularly referring to the Treasury's we call their Green Book, the Bible of their investment decision making. Um, One element um, of this is that there are concerns about bias against um, peripheral areas. Um, The Green Book is a really interesting example of this, since it's part in part based on what we call the benefit cost ratio. Um, One element of generating this is through land uplift Um, land value uplifts. However, coastal areas are immediately disadvantaged as with the sea on 180 degrees of any development, they only have 50% of land to uplift um, when compared against a similar project in a landlocked area. Um, Rural and coastal areas are also disadvantaged um, by low population densities, low rise developments and lower land values than urban areas and by other geographical constraints, such as um, sites of special uh, scientific interest and um, areas of outstanding natural beauty designations, or flood risk and coastal erosion, none of which are taken into consideration by the benefit-cost ratio principles that are applied. The challenges faced by our periphery are not helped by continued political instability, um, that has led to endemic short-termism driven by electoral cycles or by persistent bias of spending on innovation and infrastructure, in particular towards London and the South East. Decentralised government may well help, and I really wanted to end on a positive note here, as within every coastal community across England and the devolved nations, there is a wealth of innovation creativity and aspiration and this is very much what Madeline um, ended um, her talk on. Um, there are many, many, many local projects underway that are positively affecting change and making a substantial difference to the lives of many residents, including children and young people, those with disabilities or those experiencing deprivation and hardship. I'm a great believer of being a master of my own destiny. And I believe that local people living in the periphery are and should be the masters of their own futures. It's only by capturing their voices will their futures be envis- envisioned. Thank you very much.
1: Very good. Okay, thank you very much, Sheila. So that was a fantastic uh, panel. I've, I've got various thoughts and, and questions myself. However, I'm aware of the time and I do want t- to let the audience also ask questions. So I will hold back for now um, and get some questions from the floor. What we'll try and do is take them in batches of two or three. So please, um, can you say a bit about who you are, if, you know, where you come from in terms of you, if you come from a particular seaside resort? Um, and let's, let's start over
0: here in front. Thanks for your wonderful presentations. My name is uh, Chen Yuan, uh, studying PhD in urban planning. And uh, I'm wondering, like, uh, it's very obvious, like, uh, the connectivity is the uh, premises of uh, uh, the prosperity of many seaside home but uh, do you think is uh, immediately, politically viable to promote such connectivity, because obviously it's very expensive like, and uh, also there might be um, pressure from environmentalists or anti-development groups or sort of things.
1: That's Thank you. So let's get a couple more questions first, um, divers- yeah, in, the, in the middle here.
4: Hi, um, I'm doing a piece of research about Margate at the Centre for Analysis of Social Exclusion at the LSE. My question is about how the lower income and more long standing communities in areas can be included in the benefits of regeneration. Obviously, Margate has seen huge regeneration in terms of transport links
2: and cultural and art centres. Um, but yes, I just wondered
0: how the more long standing communities can be included in that um, and not be so disadvantaged by gentrification in those areas. Thank you
1: some big questions are being asked. Yet. Okay, right, you yeah, at the back of the, with the tie. Uh, thank you very much. Uh,
5: I'm Tom from Western Super in this case in Bristol. And the reason why I bring these two up is that uh, they are part of the same NHS trust. I don't know if anyone has seen uh, recently with the dentistry situation. It's pretty grim in both cases. Um, so my question is, how can we improve the outcomes in Western, uh, particularly when it is still linked to Bristol? Obviously, there are going to be different challenges in both. Western's had a huge problem keeping, keeping its a and open, still has these problems in dentistry. How can we address these challenges while they remain the same in NHS Trust? How can we address these in a way which is fair on both parties? obviously one part would be we need more money for the NHS but uh, there has to be more to it, especially with an ageing population, the problems of care, I mean everything that we've talked about.
1: Okay so should we get some initial answers um, and please just feel free to take up what you want out of the three questions but um, we'll go around. Do you want to start?
2: <coughs> the- All brilliant questions that go to the heart of all the complexity and difficulty about this. So uh, on the connectivity, um, it is expensive, but uh, take Scarborough, right? The Trans Pennine Express is the railway line that serves the northeast coast. Oh, my God, the complaints, bitter, bitter complaints about the inadequacy of that train service. It's not about new train services or new railway lines or new roads. It's about making sure the trains are working um Torquay complained bitterly about its train link which apparently its train carriages are repurposed buses on the railway line i mean i couldn't believe it but you know um on Margate you raise a really vital point Mm -hmm. which is about the shadow side of gentrification um the director of the Turner Contemporary who has now moved to Plymouth uh it's been a huge success the Turner Contemporary but she said I'm haunted by the fact that what I did is made house prices much, much more expensive for some of the community that was living there. Um, Does it spill over? It's it's really complex and your kinds of research will really perhaps bring out a kind of granular sense of where the benefits lie and where they don't. The research that I heard about in Margate through colleagues of Mike's was that the mums are both there at the school gate. The pretty London mums with their cappuccinos and their very pretty children and the mums that have lived in Margate for generations. And it, they are oil and water, they don't mix, they go to separate cafes, they have very little to do with each other. Um, and that is what haunts this project that I left on the, the last slide in, in Watch It. Those women have been absolutely determined that the art centre is not just a world-class art centre, but that it reaches low-income groups in the town. And they will measure their success by that. Art classes, all kinds of creative activities to raise the uh, aspirations of the children and inspire their imaginations. It's a great, great possibility. But when I walked along the quayside and bumped into a lady who'd lived in It all her life, she had nothing good to say about the place. She said it was a waste of money, the building was rubbish, and the drawings and the artwork would have been better done by her grandchildren. So that gives you some idea of just how difficult sometimes it is to carry a whole community with you. Uh, And I do think in Watch It, they talked to everybody and consulted with everybody, but there will always be parts of that community that think the Arts Centre is a waste of time, has nothing to do with their lives. So perhaps, uh,
3: uh, yeah I I mean I think the connectivity issue is is a really important one it's interesting actually the the current government um, in its sort of early phase invented the build back beaching program and I Mm -hmm. laughed at the time because um, they set aside 500 million pounds and they quickly discovered that they couldn't build back beaching with 500 million quid it just wasn't going to cut it Um, and so they rushed off and, and sort of announced that they might might reinstate Blythe's railway connections and Fleetwood's. Um, uh, it takes it takes time to, to build back railway lines. Um, it's, a, it's a great headline building back from beaching. But it doesn't actually deliver you very much. Uh, and and um, transport infrastructure, particularly rail lines, are incredibly expensive. So I think you've got to be much more careful and forensic about that. Not to say it shouldn't Be an aspiration and you shouldn't take the opportunities when they come along because those areas that have been reconnected to the rail network have undoubtedly benefited and if you look at there's a couple of very good examples actually the one in Scotland from um, Edinburgh Waverley is a a good example of what it does in terms of regeneration and um, footfall and so on which is it's, it's, it's definitely worth doing but you've got to think about it and plan it long and hard And we're not good at that with uh, major infrastructure projects as we've encountered with HS2. The Margate question is one that's really troubled me. In preparation for this evening, I decided to go to Margate last weekend. And um, uh, I did did two or three things. I went to the gallery, of course. I've been before and it's wonderful. Um, And it's a good, it is a good project. And it does help in the regeneration process. But round the, the art gallery, you've got the sort of nice cafes. And, and pubs and, you know, you can get a good seafood meal there. But if you go along the high street, it's Subway, it's Greg's, it's shops that are sort of only open half the time. And there are two worlds living side by side in Margate. And I think that when we make an investment into something which is about regeneration, we've got to think of the bigger picture as well and the impact. Now, I think it's good that the the demographic in Margate is going to shift. But the local authority obviously needs to think about what it does with housing, uh, the need to invest in in, in, uh, public housing in particular, and um, how they can (coughs) build on the the, the new skills that come, say, around the development of of a major art complex. Because um, without that thinking, then you don't get that immediate benefit. My own city, Uh, I sort of described in the 70s and 60s as a sort of semi-industrial town uh, that was in decline, and it was. And its unemployment figures were as bad as those in Liverpool at the time. But, um, careful investment with a powerful vision to create a sort of, uh, uh, how can I best describe it, a sort of um, academic corridor of excellence, uh, tying that into um, the benefits that could be more broadly spread across the city, has undoubtedly brought a transformation. Um, and educational outcomes have risen, um, aspiration has risen, uh, unemployment has fallen, it's now a digital centre, and hub a cultural centre uh, that's very diverse. That, that, that was thought about and planned. You know, It's something we wanted to do. That was a change we wanted to make. But unless you think more deeply, you don't get the benefit and the hit from um, even things like arts and cultural-led regeneration.
4: Um, Yeah, I think the um, two really, really interesting questions. Um, In terms of um, connectivity, I think that you know the government have a strategy around digital connectivity. um, In terms of improving broadband accessibility, availability, but also bandwidth speed as well, Um, and that's progressing now until sort of twenty thirty, and I think that will open quite a few opportunities for coastal communities in terms of perhaps, you know, standing a better chance of attracting those higher value knowledge based digital companies to, um, to invest. Um, you know, the, the whole sort of COVID hybrid working, we haven't quite seen the impacts of that in labour market statistics yet. Um, and also, you know, the fact that that is increasingly taking place, but it's not captured in productivity measures yet. Um, um, you know, and it'd be interesting to see how that sort of pans out. Um, I think in terms of um, physical infrastructure, of course, you know, for me, it locks opportunities and sort of productivity opportunities. Um, However, you know, where we currently stand with how the Green Book is operationalised, coastal and rural areas are always going to be disadvantaged. They may have a high strategic priority attached to some funding um, cases, but in terms of how the benefit cost ratios are operationalised, they're never going to have the same investment uplift. Um, so uh, a transport hub in Helston, for example, in Cornwall, is never going to have the same land uplift value as a, a roundabout in Swindon. I think that's the best way I can uh, best way I can explain. Um, but also, we, we often think about um, you know our coastal communities and tourism and hospitality being poor and being. Kind of, you know, responsible for their decline. However, many places will argue that they have highly, highly successful tourism and hospitality industries. And a factor is the way it is measured in traditional productivity um, statistics that doesn't sort of showcase um, the industry um, off. Um, Places like Devon and Cornwall in the summer gridlocked through over tourism. And I think, you know, in terms of um, investing in the railways you know, um, that will again improve the lives of local people, you know, be able to travel, <laughs> travel easily around, you know, using the motorways without, you know, taking two hours when, it half, you know, when it's really a half an hour journey. And I'm talking from somebody from Devon who, you know, regularly won't go on the motorway <laughs> from Easter all the way through to September because it is horrendous.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Time is running short. I'm, I'm, what we'll do is we'll take a, a big round of questions uh, and then we'll ask you to speak at the end. And there is a couple of, one online question, so let's try and get that
0: first. Sorry. Yeah, I've just got two, two questions online. So the first one um, from Natalie Britton, who's an LSE staff member. Uh, what role do you think that the businesses and commercial entities such as Butlins have contributed to the downfall of these seaside towns? They've been around in the glory days as pictured. Um, do you think they could have helped prevent this decline? Um, and the second one is from Peter Murray in Littlehampton um, do any of our speakers have anything to say about the role of fishing um, considering the fact that expanding local fishing was one of the key reasons why coastal communities voted for brexit okay
1: more big questions let's get a few more if you can just take your notes here, that's good um
4: Hi, Um, I'm just here, I'm
2: curious, I'm not doing any
4: research or anything, Um,
2: so in your talks you've brought up both the need for uh, economic growth but then also environmental sustainability and the issues that climate change and coastal erosion has had um, in coastal
4: towns and I was wondering how you can almost consolidate these contradictions because obviously economic growth has fueled climate change and
2: issues to do with the environment. Um, Yeah, that's
1: my question. Okay, now in the front, I think we've got some people wanting to speak. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 front.
0: Hi, uh, I'm Kieran, I'm from Blackpool. Um, And it's been really interesting to see how, like, you know, in, in this speech, and I think sort of across the country, Blackpool's become a shorthand for a lot of the issues that we speak about when we speak about, like uh, the salt fringe. Um, but like growing up there, a lot of the policy proposals that you have to sort of regenerate coastal towns already exist in Blackpool. So we're highly connected with high speed trams. We've got high speed internet. Um, my mom, interestingly, um, has a um, sort of a digital job. Uh, don't know if that's showing up in the figures yet. Um, <laughs> They give, <laughs> they give degrees from Lancaster University, et cetera. So um, it seems like there's something fundamentally, um, you know, more fundamental that's, that's stopping any sort of regeneration in, in places like Blackpool, and it's not the case in places like Brighton. Um, I was wondering if you had any idea why that might be. Um, yeah. I think it's
1: really interesting to get these contributions to the floor. So by the way, we have a few more. Yeah, in the black t-shirt.
5: Yeah, Uh, hello, my name's Neil, and I'm actually a retired Londoner, but I'm a native of Thanet. Uh, And like most people with an education from Thanet, I left. (laughs) Okay. and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is, I don't know if anybody's read um, Travis Elber's Wish You Were Here, but he makes a remark about Worthing, where he's from, that it was very difficult to imagine coming of age in a place where so many people had gone to die. Um, (laughs) So that's one reason why I'm here. The other one is, I actually made a, a list before I came out, which I'm not going to read out, um, of all the, the industries that were shut down in and around Thanet over the last 50 or so years, yeah. f- starting with things like um, the closure of the Kent Coalfield in 1989, because loads of miners used to live in Ramsgate. Yeah. Uh, the Im- Americans yeah. leaving RAF Manstern, trying and going and bust in 1971 and ending production at Westwood and the Hoverport, the Port, there's currently a battle going on about reopening Manston International Airport, led by the Tory MP, Mr McKinley, the Airsatz Farage. Um, <laughs> and it's coming up against, as all the other things have, the entrenched property lobby, which, present, you know, preserving the character of the area, um, which is also now, I suspect, cynically deploying green arguments. So I think... What I'd like to hear is, how do you overcome the rule of the dead? And how do you overcome the property lobby? Because they're two of the factors that are stopping them being jobs for working class people, which is what you really need. You need money in the pockets of working class people rather than people coming down.
1: OK, lots of fantastic points. I'm aware of the time. Should we do one round, um, to give you the chance to respond to anything you want out to to of that? And we may have time for another final Questions? Steve, you go first. Okay. Um,
3: What role Butlins played? That's a good one. Um, When Clacton on Sea lost its Butlins uh, holiday camp, uh, a large part of the local economy died with it, unfortunately. Um, But I suppose you might say that Butlins has helped with Skegness. It's sort of uh, rebranded and rethought its approach there. And Skegness has got quite a successful holiday camp, um, which is run by Butlins. So that's sort of two sides of the sort of Butlins... Empire. I've never been a great fan of holiday camps myself, but you know, I accept that there are millions of people who, who love them, and you know, I've met people who've gone back year after year. So, Butlin's, um, Butlins should have thought more about its, its, um, its withdrawal from part of the holiday market. Fishing and Brexit is an interesting one. Um, the fishing industry has sort of continued its decline, actually, particularly inshore fishing uh, post Brexit. Um, I think people were somewhat misled by what Brexit might bring to the fishing industry. It was never going to revert to how it was um, up until the 60s. But I do think that the policymakers need to focus more on um, the fishing industry and how you can retain a sustainable fishing industry and ensure one in some of our communities. Um, it wasn't a topic that we covered any depth in our Lords reports, um, but I wish we had. Um, Economic growth and climate change, I don't think there necessarily has to be a contradiction between the need to um, uh, adopt policies that um, deal with the the, the fallout from climate change and economic growth. I mean, I think the two things can coexist. You've just got to ensure that in dealing with um, uh, bringing forward policies that, that mitigate the impact of climate change, they have an economic benefit as well, and that does require quite careful thought and planning. Some of the mitigation schemes I've seen do exactly that, but um, I'm not com- completely convinced that they all do. But it's definitely a, a got to be a, a hot issue for the future. Blackpool, fascinating Blackpool, it is changing, but slowly, um, and you're right, the, the elements that they've put in place with improved transport... Um, Uh, stuff that's been done with the the Blackpool's housing company, um, bringing in uh, higher education and so on. Those things will over time have an impact, but uh, the data doesn't yet tell us very much about how much success Blackpool's current sort of uh, policy approach has got. I've got a bit of an investment in Blackpool because it's one of the policy, uh, one of the geographic areas that as a director of BITC, I've sort of been working in for the last few years with one of my colleagues. Um, Thanet, I think Thanet, you're right, you know, in in any area where we're looking to regenerate, we've got to think about uh, the range and spread of jobs that that are developed and the skills that we try to develop with them. Um, And yes, you're right, we need more um, jobs that have a a broader impact and benefit working people because, um, you know, quite frankly, if you don't do that, you're wasting and missing an economic opportunity. Than it, you're right. Decline is a product, byproduct of those, you know, traditional industries like coal mining and manufacturing are going into decline. When these things happen, you have to grasp the opportunities that new um, uh, technologies and the sort of new uh, IT revolution are bringing forward. And I don't yet think we've got that. Um, We've got the response right with the sort of uh, the, the, the new digital era, but it's. Challenge for us as policymakers, I think, and one that we've got to meet.
1: Okay.
4: Um, <laughs> um, I'm not going to pick up on everything, but I did find the um, the blackball question really interesting. And I guess, you know, as Steve said, I think it, you know, these things do take time. Um, but also, I think it's in terms of, you know, local authority placement practices of children in care, for example. Um, the, the low-cost housing issue and the HMOs, you know, and until there is a concerted sort of, um, sort of legislative effort to kind of address that, then, you know, I think, you know, you're going to see ongoing issues um, in Blackpool. Um, I just wanted to say, and um, there was an interesting question around NHS funding and formulas over there, which we skirted over. Um, I, I'm not the best, um, but my colleague, who is the um, co-director of the Centre for Coastal Communities, um, Professor Sheena Astana, she actually sits on ACRA, which discusses funding formalities and resource allocations for the NHS. And she would be really interested to have a conversation with you about that. Um, it's, it's quite a scientific dark, dark arts in terms of funding formalities, which is not my area of expertise.
2: Um, I'll just pick up about Butlins because uh, I went and stayed, it was part of my research, I went to stay at the uh, Butlins in Minehead um, and it was a really chilling experience actually. Um, (laughs) There are almost no staff in Butlins these days. The whole thing is done in a very sort of automated way. The red coats I think I saw one or two over a three-day stay so you know the idea that there's a cheery warm welcome, it's not the case anymore. uh, and I think most of those that were working in Butlins were housed, because I, I was wandering around all over the site, and they were housed in sort of blocks uh, um, at the back of the site. And I was assuming from some of the accents that there were a large number of Eastern Europeans. So what really I found striking about my experience staying in Butlins is that there was almost no connection with the main town of Minehead. Um, uh, even the beach, People didn't even seem to go from the Butlins camp, camp onto the beach. They were in the swimming pool. They were in the entertainment complex, um, and they didn't use the the. What what was extraordinary was the fish and chips, the pizzas. They were all more expensive in the Butlins than they were in the in the centre of the town of Minehead. But people didn't go for the cheaper food in in the town. They go to the centre. They stay in the centre. So Butlins' contribution to the towns in which it sits, is not straightforward. Um, so, for example, at Skegness in Goldmells which is this huge Butlins site. uh, Traffic jams leading up to the main gate most weekends. It's an enormous pull. But again, I don't think they're going to Skegness. I think it has almost absolutely no economic benefit to Skegness or Minehead. And of course, Butlins has now been sold and sold again and sold again. And I think its last owner was an American private equity company. So it's a kind of wealth extraction machine that just sits there Um, and very briefly, Blackpool, that is a really intriguing question. And I think that is my point about the combination of factors. If 8,000 people arrive in Blackpool every year in really desperate circumstances, you have a driver of poverty, which is constantly going against all the initiatives that Blackpool is trying to put in place to turn the city around. So it's like they're not pulling in the same direction. Um, so I, I thank you for that question, because I think it raises one of the really kind of key policy challenges. Mm.
1: Yeah, thank you. Look, uh, Apologies to those of you who haven't had a chance to ask a question. I didn't get to ask my question either. So, um, it's been a fantastic uh, panel and, and thanks for your responsiveness and enthusiasm from the floor. If you do uh, have time, uh, Madeline is signing books outside. So, by me means have a chat to her and buy a book and get it signed. Um, but can I thank all of you for coming and can I also thank the panel for their fantastic contributions. Thank you.